Today we'll be looking at three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. As we get closer to the end of Peter's first epistle, of which suffering has been the main theme, we find what I had called interludes uh, inserted between sections on suffering. But in reality, what Peter is doing is he's dealing with suffering, but then he comes to the practical application that is the life of the church. That we as believers together, we're not, we're not lone rangers, we're in this together, how it is that we are supposed to act. We have seen in this series that suffering does not change our responsibilities. We can't simply opt out of our callings simply because we're suffering, or particularly because we're suffering unjustly, that it's so unfair. We should not imagine that suffering changes our callings. The reality is that if or when we suffer, we're not the first to do so. We're part of a continuing narrative, which we see in the Old Testament, but we see Jesus sealing with approval by his example. And the reality is that if and when we suffer, we are demonstrating that we have given up those things against which suffering is a protest. We show our opposition to sinful living. So we need to understand that suffering does not change our responsibilities. But when one is suffering, it's hard to think of anything else. It's hard to think of anyone else. It's hard to imagine life being without suffering. But as he writes, Peter deals with the fact that we are to exercise the gifts that God has given us in light of family, partnership, and community solidarity. We are the people of God. So we read in chapter 4 of love, hospitality, and service. More than that, as Peter mentions these, he addresses these actions and he says to one another. So we are to love one another deeply. We are to show hospitality to one another. We are to serve one another. And then, as we've seen in verse 12, he returns to the matter of suffering. And in doing so, he says some amazing things, at least to me. And let me just review briefly. And this is actually from two weeks ago. First of all, he uses the language of a messianic passage, a passage that is about Jesus, that it's written hundreds of years before in Isaiah 11. And he applies it to the church. The resulting conclusion is that the suffering that these people are experiencing or may experience is not a sign of God's displeasure. It is not a sign of God's absence, but rather it is a sign that the Spirit of God rests on them. I think of all the things we've studied in First Peter, this is perhaps the most astounding statement that I can think of. Those who suffer because they are God's people bear the recognition that comes from God. He sustains them by the presence of his spirit. So rather than us thinking, oh, I'm suffering because God is unhappy with me or God is absent from my life. The reality is the spirit of God and of glory rests on you. It's an astounding and amazing thing. By the way, different ones of us have had conversations that, you know, various traditions in the church and mostly in the past, we don't hardly find it anymore, 
have really embraced suffering, have almost tried to create suffering in their life, and we just sort of shake our heads and wonder what's wrong with these people. But if we take Peter seriously, that suffering is a sign of the presence of the Spirit, then perhaps we have a better sense of why our brothers and sisters in the past have not rejected suffering, have not tried to avoid it as we have. Also, in that passage, we saw that Peter's language regarding judgment might be confusing because we tend to think of judgment and condemnation as one and the same. And as we see in the passage, that simply is not the case. That judgment begins at the house of God. We're not going to be condemned. Judgment means to discern, to evaluate, to distinguish. And it is, in a sense, a process of weeding out those who are the people of God and those who are not. So, suffering should not come as being unexpected. And to participate in suffering is to participate in the sufferings of Christ, which means we will be in the pattern of his career that ultimately one day we will be vindicated. There's so much in this passage. And it's followed by what we looked at last week, uh, the section on elders or leadership in the church. I mentioned last Sunday that I find it worth noting what Peter does not deal with in these verses, in verses 1 through 4. He doesn't tell us how many elders are supposed to be in a church. He doesn't tell us how elders are supposed to be selected. He doesn't even tell us what elders' duties are. He does say that they are to shepherd the people of God, but what this involves is not spelled out. What he does deal with, his concern is how the elders or the leaders do their duties. And he presents this by using three contrasts. Not because you must, but because you are willing not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording, over, lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, in the midst of suffering, life goes on. There are things that still need to be done. And the leaders are given to the church to lead. But also, and this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth, I think it is to remind us that being a follower of Jesus is not a purely individual matter. And that suffering is not a purely individual matter, that it is something that the whole congregation is to embrace. And this requires, on some level, uh, leadership uh, to guide the congregation. We are the family of God. And in a family, there are parents, if you wish, leaders. Seems entirely appropriate. One more thing. Uh, I mentioned last week that the choice of the title for leadership among God's people is elder. And the word in Greek is, I think, familiar enough, presbyteros. It comes from the root word presbus, which means elderly. This goes back to the Old Testament system of leadership. What we find is that the leaders of a given town were the older men in that town. So the title elder is actually much more than an merely a title, it is descriptive. And in this description, I find a certain informality. So much so that when the word is used in Greek, it's not always clear what is intended, a leader in the church or an older man. And we see it in the first sentence of our text today in verse number five, young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. Now, the English Standard Version says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There it's a title. It's positions of leadership. Um, 
The NIV tends to be more ambiguous, which I think I would go with. Those who are older. Does he mean positions of leadership or just those who are older? Well, he doesn't spell it out, and I think it's something for us to work out. The King James, by the way, says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Does that mean the elder, capital E, in the church, or simply someone who is older? To me, the ambiguity points to a certain informality as what you find in a family, or perhaps you should. Yes, there are parents, and they are to be honored, they are to be obeyed. But do they have formal titles? Um, No, in some families they may, but for the most part, each family has an informality. Dad, daddy, mom, mommy, papa, mama. Each family has these, their own informal titles, which in many ways are the glue or part of the glue that binds the family together. Years ago, when Guy and I were getting ready to get married, uh, we visited with various families in the church looking to them for advice and for wisdom. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, but uh, we had dinner with Dan and Lonnie. And Dan said something that I've remembered all these years. He told us every marriage is different. I would say by extension, every family is different. The names by which the parents are called is different. And by further extension, every church, every congregation is different. I don't think Peter would have wanted his readers to see what he wrote as a blueprint for leadership. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to find a blueprint here because he deals with how elders are to do their duties. He doesn't say what those duties are. But all of this brings us to the issue of authority and power, which seem to plague many discussions about leadership in and outside the church today. Right out of the gate, in verse number five, he says, young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. Who are these younger men? Well, different cultures categorize people in different ways. But in the ancient world, and I would just say parenthetically my research in the Philippines, they did it in terms of the young and the old. That You have basically two categories in society, the younger and the older. Now, where the dividing line is would vary from culture to culture. Some say in the ancient world it was 40. Uh, We find, though, that the Levites began serving at the age of 30. Uh, in Genesis 41, Joseph is taken out of prison and becomes second to Pharaoh at the age of 30. John the Baptist and Jesus begin their ministries at the age of 30. Where the line is, we don't know. We just know that in most cultures, there is a line between the younger and the older. Our culture is a bit different because in our culture, nobody wants to be the older. Okay. The young people don't want to be old and the old want to be young. And so to have two distinct categories, I mean, obviously we have people who are older and people who are younger, but I think we sort of resist that. I recently heard a new word. I guess it's newly coined, but it was new to me. It's called adultescence. Um, It's a mixture of being an adult and being an adolescent, that, that some people somehow want to continue the process into their adult life. Um, I will leave aside for the moment who is young and who is old because I'm convinced, and I think it will be clear, that Peter tells both groups the same thing. 
So whether you're younger or older, I think what Peter has to say is the same to you. But going back to the matter of authority and power in the church, I've been reading a book recently called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics uh, by Ross Dothat, who is a New York Times columnist. Uh, In the chapter entitled Lost in the Gospels, he notes that some of those who deny the resurrection do so because of the issue of authority. John Dominic Crossan, who is fairly well known, among other things, a member of the Jesus Seminar, who voted on whether or not Jesus said certain things. He said that the, the stories, that is the resurrection narratives, tell us nothing whatsoever about the origins of Christian faith. Sort of an astounding statement there. But quite a lot about the origins of Christian authority. They tell us about power and leadership in the earliest Christian communities, and they tell us clearly about competing specific leaders within and among these groups. I think he's really reaching. Elaine Pagels, who has really embraced Gnosticism as the true Christian faith, and she argues that Orthodox Christianity has, in fact, suppressed what was Jesus' intent. She writes, when we examine its practical effect, that is the resurrection, the teaching of the resurrection on the Christian movement, we can see that the doctrine of the bodily resurrection also serves an essentially political function. It legitimizes the authority of certain men who claim to exercise exclusive leadership over the churches. So apparently the resurrection is all about authority. I get to be the boss of you because Jesus was raised from the dead. Pagels goes on to say that this is true of monotheism. The doctrine of the one God confirms for Orthodox Christians the emerging institution of the one bishop as monarch, sole ruler of the church. Uh, Dothat, who is uh, a Catholic, I believe, uh, writes parenthetically as though there were no other reasons for no other reason for faith based on. uh, I'm sorry. Let's start over. As though there were no other reason for a faith founded by a Jewish Messiah to insist on monotheism. The only reason for monotheism is because I want to be the boss of you guys. And so I say there's one God, therefore there should be one pastor or one elder. Well, you can imagine what they think when they come to our passage today, in which the younger men are told to submit to the elders or to the older. I would just say parenthetically, they don't think Peter wrote this, so that that lets them off the hook. They're convinced that somebody used Peter's name um, for credibility, but that Peter himself didn't actually write this. What are we to do with verse number five and the idea that the younger are to submit to the older? You may remember that the issue of submitting and submission came up earlier in this letter. Let me read to you the verses in chapter two, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. In verse 14, we can supply it. Submit to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Chapter 2, verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And then chapter 3, verse 5, for this is the way the holy men of the uh, holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. What does it mean to submit? What does it mean to be submissive? This is the heart of the matter. We have to ask ourselves, is it active or passive? And how you view this makes all the difference. This is 
we've gone through this before, so this is review. We've seen before that if you look at the opposite of a word, it might give you a better sense of what that word intends. And if I were to say, what is the opposite of submit? Most people would say rebel, you know, that you, you submit to authority or you rebel against authority. But this isn't the word that Peter chooses to use. He uses a word that is the opposite of withdraw. So, in fact, by submit, he means to engage. That is, God has put us in certain positions, and there are certain duties that are involved in that position, and we are to engage. We are, in fact, to do what God has called us to do. This is where God has put me. These are my duties. I am to find that place and responsibly do the things that are involved in that position. I'm not to be resigned. Resignation is not what is called for here to say, well, okay, I submit. It is, in fact, actively engaging what God would have us to do. So when Peter writes in chapter two about political authority and here in chapter five about church authority, um, it's not a question of embracing the status quo which I think a lot of Christians through the centuries have said, well, whoever's in authority, I have to obey them. And, and so, you know, I, that's what God tells me to do. It's not resignation. And this is particularly true in our passage today, because the same letter that is written to the elders is also written to the younger people. So the younger people get to hear what the elders are supposed to do. And they are to be an example of Jesus Christ to the congregation. It would be very, very different if we have a letter to the elders and then we have a letter to the congregation. Because then the elders could say, well, Peter said in the letter to us, this is what we're supposed to do. But in fact, the young people, those who are younger than the elders can say, listen, I heard the same letter and this is what you are supposed to do. So it isn't blind submission. It isn't that I'm the boss and you're nothing and you have to do everything that I say. As one who is an elder, I am to be an example. And what Peter wants the younger people to do is to find and occupy responsibly their place in the community of believers. And you'll notice that he says in the same way, which really threw me. What does he mean in the same way? Well, in the same way that elders have been given a place and they have to occupy it responsibly and do the duties there. So those who are younger also have a place and they are to occupy it and do the duties that come with that place. But this is just the first line of verse number five. If you look at the rest in verse number five, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think that the statement begins by countering the possibility of blind submission. And it undermines any attempt at authority based on status. That somehow I'm supposed to be someone because I have a certain status. Thus, Peter tells his readers that all of them, and that includes the elders, are to clothe themselves with humility. We don't see this culturally today as much. But in the ancient world, what you wore was a sign of your status in society. It was a sign of your social position. And as one writer put it, one's garment announces what one is for another, not what one is in and for oneself. 
So if I were to wear a particular thing saying that, for example, I'm a senator in the Roman Senate, that isn't so much for me. That's for all the rest of you to know who I am and how you're supposed to treat me with respect because of my status. And if I wear the garment of a slave, then that sort of announces to the world, I'm a slave and you can treat me accordingly. The fact that Peter instructs everyone in the congregation to wear the same garment, I think is a startling negation of social norms in his world. Well, what is this garment that we're all supposed to wear? It is humility. It is the way of thinking, feeling, and acting associated with the lowly. At the end of the verse, he quotes from Proverbs 3.34. And in his quoting from Proverbs, which was written in Hebrew, he now writes it in Greek, he uses the traditional or usual or normal word for humble, which is used 77 times in the Bible. But when he talks about clothing yourself with humility, he doesn't use that word. In fact, he uses a word that is only found seven times, and it's actually a compound word. Humility is there. The humbleness is there. But he adds on the word thinking. That is to say, I am to put on a garment of a mindset. That this is the way I'm supposed to think. Think. There's a pattern of thinking. That as I am a child of God in the family of God, I must see myself as belonging to that family. I reject, in essence, the standards of the world, the status of the world that says, listen, you're somebody and this brother or sister is just a slave and so they don't have to be treated as a brother or sister. In the ancient world, which was marked by social and economic stratification, the notion of everybody wearing the same clothing, not literally, but figuratively, had radical implications. In Peter's world, for example, just consider how people greeted each other. If you were a slave, you could not look up. You had to avert your eyes because you're a slave. If you were someone of position, you could raise your chin, basically to say that you were somebody. Think of Paul's instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss. Master and slave. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. If we're all going to put on the mindset of humility that we will treat each other as being better than ourselves, this is radical. Consider the information that you, they shared with one another. Well, a free person doesn't share information with a slave. The nature of economic exchange, the possibilities for friendship and matchmaking, invitations to share a meal. If I'm a free person, do I invite slaves to eat at my table? Well, if we all put on the clothing of humility? Absolutely. What about the obligation to tell each other the truth? I can't say, well, you're just a slave. You're just a woman in Roman society. I don't owe you the truth. But if we all put on the same clothing the same mindset, then it affects how we treat each other. All of this has changed by the fact that we are to clothe ourselves with thinking that esteems and honors others. You'll notice that he says, toward one another. 
Did you see that? That it's toward one another. That I put this clothing on humility, not for me, it's for everyone else. But we need to be careful that we don't think that humility is simply the opposite of being self-centered or self-promoting or self-asserting. We need to be careful that we don't think that humility is some form of numbness. That I'm not, I'm not going to feel, I'm just, I mean, I know I'm up here, but I'm just going to sort of turn that off while I deal with other people. No. Remember that submission is the opposite of withdrawal. Humility means embracing the fact that we are human. We are made in the image of God and we are in the process of being recreated in the image of his sons. We are to find and occupy responsibly our place in the community of believers, in the congregation, and in the human community. And to support this, Peter quotes, as I said, from Proverbs 3. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we choose the way of the world, pride, the result of self-centeredness, among other things, uh, if we choose to walk down this path, we will be on our own. More than that, God will oppose us. If you take off humility and say, listen, I'm not going to do that. I am somebody. I'm better than other people. Then God basically says, you're on your own. And I stand in opposition to you. On the other hand, if we choose the clothing of humility, we will be given grace. Just a side note here. It's not in my notes, but... I don't know if you notice this. I'm noticing it more and more that grace is being used in a very non-gracious way. That is to say that people speak of earning grace, that they want to do something to get grace. That's not the nature of grace. Grace is something that is freely given. And because people have misinterpreted or redefined grace, we tend to think that grace goes to the deserving and not the undeserving. So someone who is somebody, they should be given grace, maybe even addressed as your grace. And someone who is lowly, they don't deserve grace. It's actually the reverse of what God intends. God rejects the proud. He opposes those who are proud and gives grace to the humble. Now we come to verse number six, which, um, if you look at it, it seems naturally connected to verse number five, because in verse five we read of humility and humble, and verse six men- mentions humble. But in fact, there is a shift in verse number six, just as there was in verse number one. Um, you may remember if you were here in verse number one, there's no therefore in most translations. But in verse number six, there is a therefore, which is always an indication of a, a shift in thinking. What we find is in verses six to eleven, Something very similar to verses 1 through 5. It functions very much in the same way. That is to say, it draws out the implications. In the midst of suffering, that's from chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. How are you supposed to live? Well, verses 1 through 5, how you are to live in the community of faith. How we are to respond to one another as brothers and sisters. Verses 6 through 11, how I'm supposed to live in the wider world. So it's still the implications of how do I live as someone who is suffering unjustly. But now in verse number six, we shift 
from dealing with Christians to dealing with disbelievers. There's something else, and that is that humility, I think, in verse 5 and in verse 6 are to be understood in different ways. And I always get nervous when people say something like that because it's the same word. Why are you some, suddenly now it means something differently, something different in the next sentence? Well, in verse number five, we are told that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. This points to an active choice, an active decision on the part of the believer that, okay, this is who I am. And by the grace of God, I will have the mindset of someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. In verse number six, it doesn't show up in English, unfortunately, but in verse number six, it is, in fact, passive. It is something that is done to us. So in verse number six, humility is not something that we embrace. It is something that is put on us by the wider world. As we leave the community of faith, as we go out, as we go to to, uh, work, our jobs, or to school, wherever we go, there people, in a sense, humble us because they see us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So the issue in verse number six is not whether or not we will humble ourselves. We've dealt with that in verse number five. Okay. The issue is, how will we respond? See, it's one thing for me to say, I will humble myself. I will put on the clothing of humility. It's something else when somebody else tries to put me down when they look at me as someone who is lowly. Listen, I, I'll do it on my own. I don't, don't push me. Well, in verses 6 through 11, we're dealing with, okay, how do you live in this world, this world that does not believe? Well, they are, in fact, going to look down on you. And how are you going to accept that? How are you going to respond? How are you going to interpret this? Peter urges them to accept their humble status not simply as a consequence of human rejection, but it is, in fact, the outcome of following Jesus Christ. If they rejected Jesus, then why do you think you would be any different? We see the pattern in the life of Jesus. And the pattern that we see that Peter's been beating at all throughout this is we will suffer, and then one day we will be vindicated, just as Jesus suffered, and now he has been exalted. But when we go through suffering, we may imagine, we may think that God does not know what's going on in my life. Or that God cannot do what needs to be done. Or that God does not care. The truth is, even though the suffering may have been brought on by disbelievers, all things happen under God's mighty hand. The phrase mighty hand is very Old Testament, uh, particularly with reference to the Exodus. You see this time and time again, that God brought Israel out of Egypt by his mighty hand. When someone puts me down, it does not mean that somehow I am outside the realm of God's mighty hand. That God cannot somehow protect me or lift me up. That somehow God is unable or that God is unwilling to do anything. I think this is why verse number seven is where it is. And it's so important. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We saw this, by the way, in chapter four, verse 19. 
chapter 5 is sort of drawing out the implications. Verse 19, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You may remember that I said that the word that Peter uses here for creator, this is the only place we find it in scripture. And why would he use this, this very unusual word? Because it was the word used for Caesar. That Caesar was seen as the founder, as the creator, as the one who established towns, who helped expand the empire. Peter tells his readers to trust in the initiative, the protection, and the judgment of God, rather than that of the world. By the way, the notion of casting your cares or your anxiety on God is not an exclusively New Testament idea. We find this in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 55. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. I said several Sundays ago that Peter looks to scripture for evidence, for support regarding his contention about suffering. And while he does this, I said we can affirm quite strongly that little of what Peter has to say in this book is original. It's not unique. That's not only true of suffering, but of God's caring for his people. I know that you know this passage, but bear with me as I read to you from the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. We are to give our anxieties, we are to give our cares to God. If we do not, they will separate us from him. We are to look to him, not to other things, not to worries or anxieties. As we've seen earlier in First Peter, we are to fear God and no one else. There is no need for anxiety if we trust in God who makes us the object of his concern, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Far too often we are like the disciples in the boat that night. This is in Mark 4. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked one another, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. 
Don't you care if we drown? But to use the language of this passage, sometimes people do drown. To use the language found in First Peter, sometimes God's people suffer without just cause. But in doing so, they follow the pattern in the lives of God's people, supremely in the life of his son. We hear Jesus saying in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And indeed he did. In chapter 4, verse 7, we read, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. As we saw, the word that he uses for end is talos. It's not the first time it shows up in this book. The first time, though, the NIV translates it as end. It is the end of a goal-oriented process, the ultimate object or the ultimate aim. And the telos is God's working in our lives, the saving of his people. He is transforming us. But suffering can warp our perspective. It can severely warp our perspective. In the area of power and authority, why should I submit? Why is somebody the elder and I'm the younger? In the matter of how we deal with others. And the call here is to clothe ourselves with humility. Something as basic as trusting God. Suffering can really throw us. Peter writes this letter to these people so that they're thinking and they're acting not only to one another but to the world will be what it should be. What we will look at, the Lord willing, next Sunday begins with these words in verse number 8. Be self-controlled and alert. It's so similar to what he said in verse number 7 of chapter 4. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Let's pray together. Father, there is a sense in which suffering can warp our thinking, our perspective. On the other hand, sometimes it gives us clarity that we lack when we are not suffering. When we imagine that this is the way life is supposed to be all the time. And rather than looking to you, we look to ourselves and our circumstances. I thank you that you care for us. And that we can cast our cares on you, our anxieties on you. We are to clothe ourselves with humility. But certainly we need your grace and your spirit to do this. But we also need to understand that we may be humbled in a, in a very bad way by the disbelieving world around us. We are to look to your mighty hand. To know that you are working in our lives and in the lives of others. We're not going to be here forever. 
but one day we will be with you and then it will be forever. Now you are in the process of working in our lives. A process sometimes that is very painful. Help us to remember that we are not in this alone. As Paul says, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We need each other. Help us to see this. Father, I pray for those that need work in this congregation, outside this congregation, in difficult economic times. Work sometimes is very hard to find. All things are possible with you. We should not worry about such things. You provide for birds, for flowers. Help us to trust you. And I pray that in the lives of various ones in this congregation, you would open doors and provide work for them by your mighty hand. I thank you that we could meet together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.